Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. In addition to your own Bible, you may find it on the back side of your message notes. And if you're able, please stand for the word of God. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the Word of God. Well, about 1,500 years ago, a boy named Patrick was born in Great Britain. Patrick's parents were devout Christians, but Patrick himself wasn't a believer at all, not interested in the things of God. Like many teenagers, he wasn't interested much in his education either. He lived there and everything was fine until one day... When he was 16 years old, his life took a drastic turn. Irish pirates kidnapped him and took him across the waters to Ireland. And he spent the next six years of his life in horrific conditions as an enslaved shepherd there in what was then utterly pagan Ireland. He was mistreated, malnourished, and and longed for the life and family at home, which he assumed he would never, ever see again. In the midst of those dark days from the age of 16 to 22, he was grateful for the religious education he had received, but mostly ignored as a, as a young child. And he found great hope and encouragement in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And hope in the midst of that. And it gave to him, uh, uh, it gave to him hope and an opportunity to reconnect to God through faith. And Patrick, the self-centered teenager, became young Patrick, the devout follower of Jesus, the only believer in that whole country, but doing his best to remember the liturgy and the teachings of his youth. In one of those times of prayer... In, in one of those times of prayer, he had a vision which he interpreted as God telling him to try to escape. And that if he was able to escape his master and make it to the coast, he would find a boat that would take him back home to Great, uh, great Britain. And so, of course, he did flee from his master. And it, with many great problems and uncertainties, he found a, port, a, a boat in a port and was able to persuade a captain to take him along on that boat. And then later, he landed back in Britain and made his way back to his family, where, as you might imagine, there was a glad and joyful reunion. Oh, that's a good story all by itself, and it's a true story. Except there's even more to this story, because once he got um, back home, Patrick began to really have a tremendous sense of calling, not simply to faith in Jesus Christ, but to become a, to follow the vocation of ministry in serving Christ. 
uh, and, uh, and in the midst of that following, saying, I need want to become a, a priest, a, a pastor, serving Jesus Christ, he had another second important great vision when in the middle of the night he saw a vision where, among other things, the people of Ireland were calling to him and saying, we appeal to you, holy servant, to come and walk among us. So obedient to that call, the, the vocation to follow God in ministry and to do so in Ireland, where he had spent the six worst years of his life, he began a 15-year journey of going to Europe and learning to be a priest and then ultimately made that trek to Ireland to seek to bring the love of Jesus Christ to a country he had once despised, which had taken his youth away from him. And as you might know, of course, he spent the rest of his life in Ireland, which soon became his adopted country. And of course, they ultimately adopted him as their patron saint, St. Patrick, whose holiday will be remembered two days from now. When Patrick began his ministry Ireland was in spiritual darkness. When Patrick died 30 or 40 years later, Ireland had been largely and massively converted to Christianity through that one man's life and all the people who then began to respond in faith to him. And these Irish people were uh, uh, vigorous in, in studying and copying the scriptures and making sure that they knew the word of God such so that during the Middle Ages, years after, hundreds of years later, when Europe was under the, uh, uh, under the rule of the, uh, the barbarians and most of the manuscripts were lost, guess where the ancient manuscripts were found? In Ireland. In fact, I read a book a while ago that really taught me this lesson some years ago, and the title of it was this, and I recommend it to you, How the Irish Saved Civilization. Because of that massive monastic system of copying and preserving both the Word of God and the ancient Greek writers as well. All because one teenage boy decided he would love his enemies. That's the power of love. Whenever we come around to the celebration of St. Patrick's Day, I can't help but be challenged by the story of the man whose singular life changed the course of an entire country. How he must have hated that place and those people when he was there. But somehow, because of the work of God in his heart, he had been given an incredible love for the nation and the people who had enslaved him and mistreated him. He was a living example of the thrust of Jesus' words in today's text. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Love your enemies. These are some of the single most powerful and revolutionary words ever spoken. No one had ever said that before. Jesus not only said it, but he did it 
and he expected his followers to do the same. Here Jesus comes to the climax of this great section of the Sermon on the Mount, which we have been studying since the first of this year, which is part of the larger study we're doing through the whole Gospel of Matthew. It will take us a long time, but it's just too good a story to fly over like a plane over the Grand Canyon. We're going to hike our way through. We're not even going to run through it. We're going to hike our way through it, taking a look at every nook and cranny. And we've been doing that in this particular section. You see, Jesus, after pronouncing those blessed beatitudes, which brought a welcome to all who would come, except those who, through pride or shame, were unwilling, those blessed beatitudes, he said, you are the people through whom I will change the world. You're going to be the salt, bringing preservation and flavor to this world. You're going to be the light, bringing conviction and hope for this world. You people, you mourners, you poor in spirit, you pure in heart folk, you persecuted folk, you're going to be the ones. And then he goes into the section we've been looking at for now. This is our seventh week. When he says to them, you have heard that it was said this way. I've come to fulfill that and even give to you a larger ethic than the external ethics of not killing, not, uh, not lying, not committing adultery, not coveting. He has, for the last six weeks, been challenging us with the demands of what it means to be his followers. He has scaled the mountains of life in his kingdom by tackling the lower slopes of murder and adultery, of marriage and truth and, and truth-telling, and the recent cliff of non-retaliation. That was a tough one to climb. And now, as it were, he places his flag on the top of the mountain and says, this is the ultimate ethic in my kingdom. It's love. Love. Not just for you and your family. Everybody does that. The pagans do that, he said. Not just for you and your friends. Not just for you and your community. Not just for your ethnic group, even. And not just for your nation, he says. Love for everyone. And, and especially, he says, for your enemies. Love is the highest ethic of Jesus' kingdom. That's one reason I was so glad when DJ last week, without my knowing, decided he would speak from 1 Corinthians 13. You were here. Spoke about love in a powerful way. Love is the highest ethic of Jesus's kingdom. If the church is known for anything, let it be known for what? For love. And those are not my words, are they? They are Jesus's words. Jesus began this section of the sermon by saying, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he, to abolish the law, but fulfill it. And he concludes this section with a stirring call to love our enemies. They had enemies in that day. They were real. They lived next to them. They were under their thumb. And they found this, I'm sure, to be an unbelievable statement. You mean I got to love them? And he said, yeah. 
That's what it means to be perfect, to be complete, to complete, to be whole. That word perfect doesn't mean so much perfect in every action, but it's the word perfect. Like when you say, uh, when, you, when, you, when you're walking among the apple orchard and you say, that's perfect, you mean it's mature, it's complete, it's ready. That's what it means to be a complete and fully human, human being. It's ultimately the ethic of love. Yes, so far as we know, words like this had never been spoken before. There's no written record of anyone saying, love your enemies. But Jesus not only said it, he did it. He did it. He was the first to say that the commandment to love extended beyond family, beyond geography, beyond religious boundaries, all the way to enemies, all the way to those, even those who hate uh, even those who hate us, to those who want to harm us. It was and is an utterly revolutionary claim, and yet it is the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus today. It's not an accident. The first fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. Love. Yes, it's the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You know, we're fond of saying, and we sang earlier this morning as we started our service, we are called to faith, gathered in love, sent with hope. Called to faith, gathered in love, sent with hope. And that's an excellent statement reminding us of those great tri triune qualities of faith and love and hope because everybody needs something to believe in, somewhere to belong, and something to live for. Without hope, there's no reason for living. Without love, there's nowhere to belong. Without faith, there's nothing really to believe. And we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're gathered in love as a community of Jesus Christ and sent with hope on the mission of Jesus Christ. But we could very well have said this. Not that we are called to faith, love, and hope, that we are called to love, love, and love. We're called to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. We're called to love one another as ourselves, doesn't the scripture say? And we're called to love this world and, in fact, to love our enemies. We're called to love God, gathered to love one another, and sent to love this world world laying down our life for it as Jesus laid down his life for us. Later in this same gospel, as the political heat began to rise on Jesus, and not long before he was arrested and ultimately condemned, Jesus was asked by religious people, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, this is in Matthew 22, 36 and 7, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like to it. He asked for one command. He gave him two. The second is like to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Interestingly, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He didn't talk about the perfect 10. He talked about these two, one which comes from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. 
and from Leviticus 19, where he says, where the scripture says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He said, these are the two greatest commandments. And he went on to say in the 40th verse, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You remember that Jesus began this section of the Sermon on the Mount by saying, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And here, at the end of Matthew, in the text we won't come through for a while because it's in the 22nd chapter, he now says that if you summarize all the law and the commandments, one word is good enough. Love. Love for God. Love for your neighbor. Yes, and if you think about it, loving God describes the first four commandments, and loving your neighbor describes the last six commandments. Love for God. You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make yourself a graven image. You shall not take the Lord, name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Love God. And the next six, love your neighbor. Honor your father and mother that it may be well with you. You shall not murder shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. In a word, love your neighbor, love your neighbor. Yeah, the highest expression of that love is when it extends even to our enemies. We might think this unreasonable, but Jesus did not, and neither did his followers for it wasn't only patrick but throughout history we have seen examples of the people of god laying down their lives before those even who would take their lives they were martyrs really right and the word martyr is simply the word witness seriously martyrios witness yeah they're witnesses to their love for god and their love for one another by being willing to die for others. We might think it unreasonable, but Jesus did not. We might think it impossible, but Jesus did not. In fact, if there is one quality that characterized Jesus' life from start to finish, what was it? It was love. It was love. In fact, in one of his last words on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them even as they cursed him. And Romans, in reflecting on this, says, but God shows his love for us in this, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Romans 8, excuse me, Romans 5, 8 to 10. Now, you know, of course, that our world is in crisis right now whatever you think about it you know that's the case it is a place of fear a place of apathy a place of hatred of uncertainty and god is giving us a tremendous opportunity as his kingdom people to demonstrate love in the face of fear because perfect love Casts out fear, the scripture says. First John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out, uh, casts out fear. 
perfect love. There is a lot of fear in our world, but we are not called to be people of fear. Let us reject fear and choose to love. You know, fear is what causes us to empty the stores of toilet paper and sanitizer. It's not rational. Fear thinks of ourselves first and others later. Later, Love thinks of others first and ourselves later. Love causes us to share our goods, not hoard our goods. Love causes us to be giving people, not taking people. Let us be known for our love during these uncertain times. You know, one of the, historically speaking, I wasn't, I'll throw this in anyway. Um, historically speaking, one of the great things which led to the massive growth of the church in the early centuries of its life, in the 200s and so, and 300s, was the great plague which ravaged Europe. Perhaps the worst pandemic in history where thousands of people died. And you can read about it, and you will see that one of the things that happened is that many people just abandoned loved ones, abandoned people, and left them to die, fleeing to the country so they could get away, just doing that. And, uh, uh, but Christians, notably, by and large, did not do that. They stayed and cared for their weak and their poor. And in fact, there are... Uh, there are statements in Roman uh, uh, works which talk about the incredible reality that many Christians even took care of people who were not their relatives. And yes, many of those Christians died. They died. <laughs> they had hope that went beyond the grave, and they felt they were called to love, even a great personal cause. But what happened once that plague uh, spent itself uh, out is that those incredible acts of love made an impact on that culture. And thousands and thousands of formerly pagan folk were attracted to the gospel because of the love they had seen. A love which was incredible. Yeah, Believers don't let fear control their lives, but love controls their lives. Fear, in addition, is what causes us to lash out at politicians and professionals who don't meet our expectations. But love motivates us to pray for our leaders, to offer them grace, to be patient with others who are likely doing the best they know how to help us. In the text that DJ read for us last week, love believes all things, hopes all things, bears, uh, believes all things, bears all things, endures all things, hopes all things. Yeah. Fear is what causes us to panic in the face of these uncertain days. But love allows us to rest secure in the knowledge that God is in control despite the storms around us. And it gives to a peace that brings calm not only to ourselves, but to our unsteady world. For perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love is also the antidote to apathy. Apathy is what causes us to be 
dismissive in the case of the current crisis. I'm not sick. What's the big deal? Why is everyone making such a big deal about this? Apathy. Apathy is not love. Love refuses apathy. Love reminds us that the ripple effects of our actions have wide ramifications in the lives of others. Love willingly limits his freedom, not out of fear, but out of love. Or we know that it puts the needs of others above our own. Love knows no geographic or religious or ethnic boundaries. Love cares for all people as made in the image of God. None of us would be apathetic if it was our mother sick and unable to get treatment. None of us would, right? Love looks at all people through that same lens, knowing that everybody is someone's mother or daughter or sister, everybody. And it feels empathy, love for those who are suffering. Jesus told a story about this in the story of the Good Samaritan. There were religious people who passed by the sick man on the road. Not his problem. Not my problem. They were apathetic, and they even had good reasons to do so. But the foreigner enemy, the despised one, the one who had every reason and right to be apathetic. He was the one who saw another human being in need and a great personal risk and cost to himself. He served the man on the side of the road. That's what love does. Love refuses apathy. In fact, this story that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan occurs immediately after this text that we're studying today in the Gospel of Luke. When Luke tells the story about Jesus saying that we should love God and uh, love our neighbor, that section, the person said, well, but who is my neighbor? <laughs> he said, let me tell you a story. Yeah. And Jesus turned the question around. The man had asked, who is my neighbor? But Jesus then said, now who was a neighbor to that man? See the difference? Who was a neighbor to that man? The question is not who is your neighbor, but to whom will you be neighborly toward? And this man was neighborly towards that man. He was not apathetic. He was not apathetic. All love treats everyone like family. Yeah, Jesus' love replaces is the is the, uh, the 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 the, the Jesus' love is the love which casts out fear. It's a perfect love which casts out fear. It's a perfect love which is the antidote to apathy, and Jesus' love is the love which replaces hatred with love. Jesus said, "Love your enemies." Yes, Jesus' love for us was willing to endure the cross and despise the shame and ran with patience the race that was marked out for him because of his love for you and 
for me. Here is love, 1 John 4 says. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, the love which grows in our hearts, which allows us to lay down our lives for anyone, is not the kind that we manufacture in ourselves. It's the kind that is planted in our heart when we gaze at the loving example of a man on a tree who didn't have to go, but who did it for you and for me. For the man on the tree, and knowing that I was among that crowd who said, crucify him, crucify him, and that I have said that by my actions and my deeds just this past week, and I am guilty and Jesus died for me. And as I live in and reflect that on, reflect on that love, something changes in my heart. Because I know that the one who knows the worst about me loves me unconditionally. I don't have to hide. I don't have anything to prove. I don't have to think I'm better than someone else. I'm the chief of sinners because my sin put Jesus on that cross. But in the midst of that, that Jesus loved me despite my evil. And I have a love which now then can flow out from me towards others whom others might despise or overlook. We become people of love, people of love. The world will be changed as followers of Jesus Christ recapture that kind of love, the kind of love which Jesus said in this closing section of this text. We're going to go to the Lord's table as we close our time together. As we do, it is our weekly reminder of God's love for us, of his sacrifice for us. It is that wonderful opportunity that we have to stand before him knowing the shame of our sin, but also the incredible outworking of his love because it's Christ's love which transforms us into loving people who can Love others. Here is love, the scripture says. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. Verse 16, 1 John 4. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God in him. By this, his love is perfected with us so that we might have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is also, we are in the world. There is no fear in love. A perfect love. Casts out fear. We love because he first loved us. If you're having trouble loving others, 
you need to open your heart more deeply to God's love. It's out of that that you will be able to say about those who have harmed you, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, because you know that on the cross, Jesus did that for you. Let's have prayer while we close. Lord Jesus, thank you for your incredible love for us. Thank you for giving to us a living example of what it means to be a loving person. And in these days when life seems so out of control for so many, may there come in our hearts and minds a calmness, a peace, an awareness that perfect love casts out fear, casts out apathy, casts out hatred. Perfect love is the love we see on the cross when you gave your life for our benefit. Teach us what that means as we navigate our way through these days. And as we take the Lord's table now, may we do so with incredible gratitude and thanksgiving for your love for us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray.